to think that with our song, we are joining the chorus of our brothers and sisters singing around the world on this day, the Lord's Day. And that's a beautiful thing to consider, uh, that we have the privilege of bringing our hearts to Him in song, of enjoying fellowship together, and that we do so in times of, of conflict. These are hard days. Uh, I feel like almost every time I go to a computer, turn something on, there's more bad news, there's more opposition, there's more darkness, there's more of those things. And, and the beauty is, is God's people and, and, and the gospel, the light of Christ, is a stark contrast with that. Um, but, but, but as we do so, we, we, we kind of have to engage uh, with, with this world around us. We need to be able to, to be lights and salt in the middle of, of that kind of, of thing. And, and sometimes uh, it can be hard to know how. Uh, sometimes we, we find ourselves asking probably more questions uh, than we sense, you know, having a real clear pathway ahead. And, and sometimes Jesus will, will take our assumptions about things and he will do something in a way that's inexplicable to us and, and to the people certainly around him uh, during his earthly ministry. And uh, I, I, I want to ask you just a, a question about that. You know, this idea of there's evil and there's good and there's the idea of we don't want to be contaminated by evil, but we want to be an influence for what's good and right. And even as I was preparing, I was thinking, you know, what, what are the types of contamination that cause me to have the most concern? We all probably have different ones. For some, it might be food contamination. For others, it might be air contamination. But for me, I got to say, the one that bugs me the most is probably water. And I, I've, maybe you've traveled to places before where you can't use the water. You know you're in a different place if you've got to brush your teeth with bottled water, right? You're actually going, okay, this is not, not okay. And, and I've been in situations before where I've been in some of those places with a team member, and it's kind of like, hey, did you remember to brush your teeth with bottled water? And they're like, and they're like, just kidding. I'm like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Because you know what's going to happen. When that contamination, if your body's not capable of dealing with those microbes, oh, those microbes are going to deal with you. And so contamination is a big deal. And when you look at how Jesus deals with people and deals with, with the world and the world we live in and how we interact in that way, he's actually dealing with a group of people who were concerned about those things. And what happens now is in the portion of Luke that we're in today, we're seeing more and more opposition to Jesus as he continues to, to carry out this good news. There's more coming against him. There's people that are saying, wait a minute, that's not okay. What's going on? The healing, we like that, but we don't like this. And he begins to have more of that. And so if you go ahead and would open to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Luke 5, 27 to 39, you'll find it on, on page 48 there in the, in the New Testament. So it's toward the, the back of the Bibles there on the chair rack in front of you. And because this is the Word of God and we want to honor it, would you please stand as I read? Luke 5, beginning with verse 27. Uh, he's, he's just um, caused a man who could not walk to be able to walk, and everyone is stunned by this. He's declared he can forgive sins, and they're going, you can't say that. Only God can say that. And he said, okay, well, what's easier? To say I can forgive sins or to tell this man to get up and walk? Get up and walk. And the guy did get up and walk. And now everyone's amazed. They're astonished. And so 
It moves on in verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi standing in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him at his house. And there were a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And he said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would work in this time in our hearts, that your spirit would take what he's penned to transform us from the inside. We pray, Lord, that we would see you clearly, more clearly, and that we would live and follow you with, with, with more purpose and more fervor and more joy even because of the great work you have accomplished and are accomplishing in redeeming sinners. People like us, we thank you for this moment to be with you in this way, and we look to you now to do mighty things. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Uh, we're going to take time to travel through the narrative and just allow it to speak to us, and then we'll circle back and, and, and pull out some applications from there for, for our lives. But here we're looking at something where Jesus is going out and he notices somebody. It's very interesting. He notices a tax collector. And, and that right there should make you stop and go, wait a minute, what? A tax collector? Okay, how do you feel about IRS agents right now? All right? Now, as much as you might feel that way towards, and by the way, if you are working in the IRS, we're, you're glad you're here. Welcome. We're not, you know. But, but the truth is people, you know, there's like, those are not people we tend to, you know, go, what a wonderful profession, right? Here it was much, much worse because at least with our tax system, there are rules. There's, you know, the, the rates are set. It's not an arbitrary thing. Whereas there, you can, he's, he's just left Capernaum and it seems as though he's leaving an area that had a lot of commercial traffic, a lot of roads. And so undoubtedly, Levi's tax booth is set in a prime spot, main thoroughfare. Everyone traveled through there. And, and what a tax collector could do it, it is just sort of like, okay, I can collect basically whatever I want. So the Roman government said, you've got to collect this much. We expect this much from you. But whatever you take above that, that's yours. And so typically, 
These would be people, you know, Rome was famous for this. They would be people who are from the area that was conquered and occupied. So indigenous people, Rome would recruit them because they know the language, they know the customs, they're less likely to be ripped off, etc. They would use them to collect the taxes. So Levi, here he is, someone who is born an Israelite who's a traitor, who works for the occupying enemy. And not only that, but when you come by his booth, he'll look, and, and there were different taxes for different things. And he, so, for example, there's your, there's your cart tax. Oh, but you have two oxen. Well, that's going to cost this. Oh, I see. You don't have a two-wheeled cart. You have a four-wheeled cart. Well, <laughs> that's going to be more, right? And they just kind of make up stuff as they go and collect over and above what they needed to give to the government. So these people are out and out just evil. They're despised, and understandably so. But Jesus, what does he do? He's walking along and he notices him. And by the way, what's Levi doing at the time? He's sitting in the tax booth. He's right there. He's doing what he's been doing for years. And Jesus just says two simple words. Follow me. <laughs> what? Jesus, why, why are you picking this guy? I mean, at least just scrape the bottom of the barrel. Why are you going under the barrel? Like what, this is, he's the worst of the worst. And yet you are calling him very offensive to the Jewish people at that time. Aggravating, puzzling. But then it gets worse. Look at verse 28. This guy actually responds to Jesus's call. What does Levi do in that moment? He left everything behind, got up and followed him. What? Now, we, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you'll recall that Jesus was on the lake. There were these fishermen. One of them was named Simon and his, the two sons of Zebedee. They're out there. They also left everything behind. They left their boats to follow Jesus. Here, we have a tax collector doing the same thing. It's interesting to think about this. It's very likely that Simon and the others could return to fishing. If this thing with Jesus didn't quite work out, the fishing industry is still going to be there. Very likely there was a family business and others had, had the boat. As a matter of fact, we find out later in some of the gospel accounts that, in fact, after Jesus did die on the cross and was buried, he, he rises again. And where does he find Simon and the others? They're, they're, they're fishing again. Levi leaving his booth? That's a different story. You're giving up one of the best tax routes you could possibly have. The thoroughfare leaving Capernaum. I'll guarantee you, within the corrupt world of tax collectors, that booth isn't going to sit empty very long. And I'll also guarantee you, if you want to go back to it, it's not going to be waiting for you. Something's happened with Levi. Something's changed. Something's transformed inside of him. The story gets even stranger. Again, if you're a first century person reading this, you're going, what? Are you kidding me? Because what does Levi do? He has a big, big, big party. Probably in his big, big, big corrupt tax collector house. I don't know if you've ever, you know, kind of seen the depiction of like, you know, the mob of days of old, right? Eh, you know? Leave the gun, take the cannoli, huh? you know, that kind of thing, right? There's that whole thing. But what are they? You got the mob boss's house, right? Yeah, the house, yeah. Come on over, right? 
and it's a big old party, right? It's a big old house. The whole, that's what this would be. This is a corrupt guy dealing in a corrupt industry, robbing people. Notice he's left that. He's turned away from that. And yet he's inviting everyone over. And who's going to come to the party? Well, it's not the religious people of the day. No, it's other criminals. It's other tax collectors. You got to love what's said in verse 29, right? There's, there's a, a great crowd of tax collectors. What does that mean? There's a ton of them. And other people. <laughs> other people. There's no, no, no further description given. And they're reclining at the table. Now, it's interesting because a, a big event like that would be very public. So, uh, you know, for you, when you invite folks over to your house, you probably go inside the house. There's walls. You know, no one sees it. This is a public event. The Pharisees are not going to this party. They never would. But they're observing it from outside. And they can tell there's a party, there's a bunch of people dining. And wait a minute. Jesus and his followers, this one who's claiming to be son of God, the one who's been healing and, and declaring your sins are forgiven, the one who has claimed this, this place of, of, of coming as, as God's son, as the son of man, the Messiah, he's eating with tax gatherers, and, and notice, by the way, there's their description. It's tax collectors, and look at the end of verse 30, and sinners. They fill it in. So, whereas the narration says in verse 29, tax gatherers and other people, the Pharisees fill it in. No, no, no. Tax gatherers and sinners. They'll tell you who they are. How dare they? And why would Jesus do that? Because to eat with someone, to eat with someone is to identify with them. In their culture, when you had someone over for a meal, it wasn't just because you were, you know, enjoying the cuisine. You were bonding with them. You were sharing table with them. And I think, you know, in our culture, we've kind of lost that. I mean, I, th I think it's really good for us to remember that. Sharing table with, with others, with brothers and sisters around meals and talking about God and the things of God, that is a beautiful expression of fellowship. And it's something that they understood. And they're shocked that Jesus would do this. And, and as, as, as much as we, we look at that and we, when we go, man, what, you know, what, what's happening here? This former tax gatherer is now happy to share all that, that he has to, to share this news with others about who Jesus is. These Pharisees are grumbling. And, and really, the, there's a reason for that. You know, a lot of times I think we look at the Pharisees and we go, well, they were just a bunch of grumpy, mean people. And by the way, they, they, they were grumpy, it's true, and they probably were mean, but that's not the main point. The main point here is, is, is they believed they needed to, to, to separate from others in order to separate themselves from, from uh, being contaminated by their sin. You know, again, in, in the same way, if water is impure and you drink it, you're, you're going down. You know, E. coli or something else, some other kind of, kind of pollutant. You don't want to ingest that. You would never want to do that. And so what the Pharisees are saying is we don't want to be polluted by their sin. And, and so what Luke's really driving home here is that as much as they, they were trying to preserve those things and as much as they were trying to keep their people from the influence of paganism and from the pollution of the corrupt culture around them, which, which was very corrupt, they in fact ended up missing the whole point of why they were the people of God. 
which was to be a light to the nations. And so Jesus comes in direct confrontation with their understanding of that. Uh, Jesus instead comes in and, and answers them. Look at verse 31. I love the question. Is it not those, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Oh, it's a statement actually, but that's what he's saying. Those who are well don't need a physician. And it's kind of like you think about it. You know, so, so do you fault a mechanic for being around broken cars all the time? No. You know, do, you, do, you, do you fault a doctor for being amongst people who are ill, who need help? No. That's where they belong. That's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And, and that's the other thing. Um, it's very fascinating to see that these Pharisees actually think that they're well. They don't need a physician. As a matter of fact, the way of salvation from their vantage point is this. Are you a sinner? Are you dirty? Good. Make yourself well. Clean yourself up. Get your act together. And notice Jesus is saying the exact opposite. Jesus is saying, are you a sinner? Are you polluted? Have you missed the mark? Have you overstepped and transgressed my boundaries? Has your heart been twisted by perversion? This is my call to you. Come to me. Right now. Exactly as you are. Come to me. I want to join with you. I want to embrace you. I want to bring you to myself. And by the way, I do not fear contamination from you. You know why? My grace, my holiness, my purity, it's more contagious than any sin you could possibly carry. And in the same way he touched the leper, and rather than becoming leprous himself like everybody else would, his grace and healing flowed through and healed that leper in the same way for the sinner, the polluted one. He brings cleansing. He brings forgiveness. And he does it not because anyone's earned it or anyone's deserved it. No, it is a gift of grace. So maybe you're here today and, and you've not yet come to that place of following Jesus, of coming to him. Maybe, maybe you think, no, I got to get this together first. I got to fix that. I got to stop doing that. I've gotta, I'm too dirty. And Jesus is saying to you, there's no way. No, I came to rescue sinners. And if that's you, he's saying, follow me. Would you do that today? It's very simple. It's saying, Lord, I'm coming to you. I'm a sinner. I need your cleansing. Please forgive me. I believe. You lived that life I could never live. You died in my place. You've risen again. And at that moment, your sins are cast into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. Jesus 
Jesus clarifies who he's come for in this statement. He has not come to rescue the self-righteous. By their own doing, they actually take themselves out of the place of being able to be saved. They place themselves beyond their need for him. But Jesus is saying, I've come to save those who are, who are corrupt, dirty, and have need of being cleansed and healed. And, and this isn't the kind of thing, too, where Jesus is sort of like ignoring all of those different holiness proclamations from, from the Old Testament. What he's really saying is he is clearly aware of that sin. He doesn't deny that they're sinners. He actually says, I've come to call sinners. But what he's, what he's saying is he's bringing a new concept of holiness which comes from him alone. And he's seeking those people. We find the same thing in other places in scripture. We find uh, the shepherd searching for the lost sheep or, or the woman who searched for the lost coin. Uh, and, and, and in each of those things, we find that, that the coin is passive, right? The coin doesn't get found. She finds the coin. The sheep certainly do nothing to, to be caught, you know, rescued by the shepherd. I was even talking earlier in, in the newcomer's class you know, about the, the video I saw where it was like, you know, there's a ravine and there's a sheep in it. And the angle of the camera is like you can see the ravine going off into the distance. And this shepherd boy is busy trying to pull this sheep out of the ravine. And, you know, uh, uh, and finally, you know, I think it's happening somewhere in, in, in the Middle East, but he, you know, the shepherd pulls, the shepherd boy gets this sheep out and just places it daintily next to the ravine like, yay, you're rescued. And the sheep just goes, boink, 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 jump into the ravine immediately the sheep is not doing something to get saved folks it's the shepherd okay the shepherd is rescuing and so it's, it's very much a um, an act of grace and an act of, of mercy and, and, and an act of the kindness of the heart of the shepherd that rescues And so he answers the Pharisees in that way. And, and of course, then and they're kind of taken aback by it. And in verse 33, they, they then respond to what he just said. They respond with, with a, eh, it's not really a question. It's more of a, I'm gonna, we're going to get you. We're going to catch you in another one of your, your, uh, your statements, Jesus. They're going to do this a lot, by the way, as the gospel continues on. But they say in verse 33, hey, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers. Where's Jesus right now? at a feast, right? So they're going after him. And the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. So Jesus, Jesus has just said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. The Pharisees are saying, oh yeah, nice party. That really looks repentant. Look at you guys, living it up with a bunch of tax gatherers and sinners. That looks really repentant. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're kind of giving him the, I gotcha moment. But Jesus, the way he always does, takes their gotcha and just kind of takes the thrust of the sword and goes, Woo, and they end up poking themselves. That's just how, what he does. Verse 34. 
You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? So interestingly enough, in the first century, with fasting rules, there were different times, different places people could fast. There's written in some of the law that you cannot fast during a wedding. Why? It's inappropriate. Why would you do that? A wedding is a time of celebration, a time of joy. And he goes on to say in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Jesus is looking ahead to his ministry. He understands there's going to come a day where he's not physically with his disciples. There's going to come a day of other elements of ministry where he's going to be wrongfully, uh, out of malice, murdered on a cross. And yet he's going to be using that for the purpose of rescuing these very same sinners who turn to him. But he's looking ahead and, and, and showing that he understands what's coming. But you can't, how inappropriate would it be for those at a wedding to fast? And I know for us, you know, we kind of don't quite get that completely because we're not, you know, generally given to fast. By the way, you might recall if you were with us during the pandemic, as a church together, we took a time to fast as a church family. And that is still available. All of the things on fasting, it's still there on the website. So if you just go to ClaytonValleyChurch.com and in Google afterwards put fasting, that page will come up. And there's plenty of instruction we have on that because it a, it's a beautiful discipline. It's a good thing to do when you're seeking God's will and trying to find, work things through. Uh, but all that to say, um, when Jesus is doing this, he's... Uh, He's saying it, it wouldn't be right. And so, and so uh, to, to fast during a wedding. I think it, maybe an analogy for us that we would get, you know, if you, were, if you had a kid's birthday party, right? So let's say you're, you know, you're going to a, uh, a seven-year-old's birthday party, right? And there's presents, right? And there's it's, it's, it's this big celebration. Everyone's enjoying it. And then uh, it's, it's, it's time, you know, it's time to, uh, you know, gather around the table and, and we're going to enjoy some things together and sing happy birthday. And out comes a tray and it's a bunch of broccoli cups and carrots. What? I mean, is that good for you or not? Who cares? That is not appropriate for a kid's party, right? What are you supposed to have? Cake. You know, ice cream. Candles, that stuff. That would be, and by the way, if you're sitting there going, what I did that with my kid last week, we got to have a conversation. We got to talk. Because that's just not right. That is so not appropriate. It doesn't match the occasion, right? And, and that's what's happening with, with this. Why, why would they fast when in fact the bridegroom is here? And, and, that, and that's really what Jesus is saying um, you, you know, Pharisees, you are so caught up with the preservation of things that you're missing out on the inauguration of God's kingdom. Again, you're so caught up with the preservation of things, you're missing out on the inauguration of God's kingdom. And so he, Jesus uses this example. It's an absurd example to them because it's terribly inappropriate to fast at a wedding. It's a clueless thing to do when the wedding is an occasion of joy. And in the same way, he's saying, right now I'm here and this is an occasion for joy. The other thing I think he's helping them to see is this. Repentance does not have to be a repentant, gloomy, 
That's right. Sackcloth and ashes and that's it. No, this is a repentance that includes joy. There's a turning away of what we once loved and we're turning to Christ. We're turning away from lesser things to him, the greatest of all. And so even as we are turning, and that's what repentance means. You're, you're walking one way, you turn 180, you're walking another way. This is a repentance that, yes, it is a walking away from and a giving up of things and a cutting of things off and a rescinding of things that, that used to ensnare my heart and I used to love. But I'm turning to, I'm repenting and turning to Jesus, the living God. The fountain of living waters. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He then goes on and he, and he, he gives them a, a parable to try to help them understand it because he's, he's talking about him. I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. I, I, I've come. I am the son of man. He's already said that in the previous section. I'm inaugurating a new age and you're missing out on it because you want to preserve your traditions. And so he goes on to tell them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. No one does that in that time period. Now today, I'm, we do all kinds of things. I'm just, you know, people are going, yeah, with my jeans, I like to rip them. And then I do, you know, I know, whatever. Okay, fine. That's not the point. Here in this time period, they would not do that because the old piece or the old garment and the new piece, they would not stay attached. It would rip apart. And not to mention it wouldn't match. And in the same thing with, with wineskins, it, it was a common thing. Everyone knew that. If you have new wine, you can't put it in old wineskins. That's not the way wineskins work. You can put new wine in it and then it ages and then it's fine. But if you try to reuse the wineskins, you ruin two things, both the wine and the skins. And so what is he saying? He's telling them, I'm not here to preserve your religious traditions. I am here inaugurating a new thing. My presence as the king, the son of man, is to inaugurate a new kingdom. I am bringing a new covenant. And so as foolish as it would be to put new wine in old wineskins, so it is also foolish to expect me to bring things that are going to be an add-on to this religious stuff you already hold on to. I'm not here to fulfill like you've got your religious carton and you want, I want, I'm going to bring an additive to what you have. That's not what I'm doing, Jesus says. No, instead, I'm bringing the new kingdom and I am enacting a new covenant. And I'm calling sinners to receive forgiveness. And if only, Pharisees, you understood that you really weren't well, you in fact are sick, you too would receive this cleansing and forgiveness. And then Jesus kind of rebukes them with the last line of the, of the, of the section and kind of concluding the parable when he says, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. That's aimed directly at them. They just want to preserve what they have. And they're much more about preservation at all costs. And they're missing out on, again, the inauguration of the new kingdom. 
of the Messiah. So for us, how do we, how do we apply these things? What are some things we can, we can take away from this section of Scripture? And I think just as a general principle would be this. We must value what Jesus values as we walk in his way. Jesus is showing us what he considers valuable. And the first thing would be this. Jesus values the joy of contact with sinners. And there's a lot for us to unpack in that. But here, what we find is Jesus is the one who cares about, is seeking after sinners. That should give us all comfort. You know why? <laughs> that's us. <laughs> Let's be very careful and not think, oh, that's right, yeah, there's sinners out there. And in here, we are, oh, really? Are you? Are we? Now, thankfully, when Jesus overtakes someone's life, when Jesus receives someone to himself, when we come to Christ, we become new creatures. Old things have passed away, new things have come. So we actually are new. We're called saints. We still wrestle with sin. But the problem here is that sometimes it's very easy for us to, to, to take a group of people and go, yeah, well, they're despised. You know, we don't, we don't, want, we don't want those people around. May that never be said at Clayton Valley Church. We don't care who you are. We don't care where you're from. We don't care what you've done. We want you to know Jesus because Jesus saves sinners. Jesus' focus is not the separation for religious preservation, but instead it's connection to bring new life. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, I'll receive those sinners. No, he comes and dines with them. In their house. But you also notice he doesn't just blend in. Because he tells the Pharisees, I've come to call them to repentance. So as much as he has contact with sinners, he does not participate in sin, and he doesn't pretend like sin isn't there. And so I think we find very much here uh, uh, the beginnings of what Paul later would say is, you know, be in the world, but not of the world. There's the tension. In it, not of it. And all of us have to wrestle through that. But, but Jesus values the joy of contact with sinners. Are, are you, in your life, do you have people in your life that don't yet know Jesus that you are in contact with? Are you spending time with them? Are you doing things? And to the extent that, that we say, no, I don't, I don't have time for that, then we need to reevaluate how we're spending time. We desperately need to value what Jesus values, and that means contact with people who do not know him. Now, there's all kinds of ways in which we need to be wise about that. There's a lot of things where it's like, I, I'm, I'm not expecting um, to see, you know, a bunch of our men showing up at a bunch of bars, you know, trying to um, minister, single guys ministering to single ladies. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? And people are like, oh yeah, maybe I should. It's like, no, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. So Romans 6, read, you know, Romans 6 is where, you know, Paul talks about, you know, well, if we're saved by grace, the, the opponent would say, shouldn't we sin more so there's more grace, right? And, and essentially, you know, Paul, as I've said before, kind of does the, the Batman to Robin, no, you know, you're dead to see. You've seen that comic before. Maybe, maybe you haven't. Forget it. The point is, no, it's not. It's not it. 
If, you, if you've died to sin, how can you still live in it? So there's been, a, there's been a radical transformation inside of you, meaning that you are a new creature, meaning now you live in a new way. You live with resurrection power from the age to come, which means you don't want to walk in that way anymore. So the question itself is revealing something about where you're really at, if that's your aim. I want to sin as much as possible, but I still want to be forgiven. Okay. That you need to ask the question, well, what's happened in me? Lord, have I come to you? But it's fascinating that, again, sinners are not beyond the pale for Jesus. In fact, they are the focus for his ministry. And, and the same thing needs to be true of us. Um, here's, an, here's another thing that we find in light of this. And when, when we talk about the, the joy of, that Jesus has for contact with sinners we find here with the cluelessness of the Pharisees that religious self-righteousness is actually more dangerous than worldly sinfulness. Yeah, religious self-righteousness is more dangerous than, than worldly sinfulness. Why? Because the self-righteous person removes their very kind of thinking and, and their sense of need from ever really having a need for Jesus at all. If you're self-righteous, you don't really need a savior. And we've got to be very careful of that. Because that's a very dangerous place to be. So we need to value what Jesus values as we walk in his way. First of all, the, he values the joy of contact with sinners. The second thing is he really does value the joy of repentance. When we repent, do you realize there's joy? If we were to look at how the Bible describes repentance, joy and repentance are connected. They really are. As a matter of fact, what does Jesus say? He'll, he'll, he'll say, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than a thousand righteous people. The kind of pictures that are given in the New Testament of repentance have to do with weddings and feasts and celebrations. The year of Jubilee, Jesus has already associated his ministry with that earlier on when he, he, he read the scroll of Isaiah there in, in, in the synagogue. And so I think we, we need to really value that too in our own lives. So, so repentance is not just, I'm turning away from this. That's a part of it. Whatever that sin is, whatever that thing is that I'm valuing. But repentance is also, I'm turning towards Jesus. Why? Because eternal life is knowing him. Why? Because now I am tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I think of John Piper's uh, recurring phrase, I think it's really good, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So we must value what Jesus values as we walk in his way. He values the joy of contact with sinners. He values the joy of repentance. And lastly, he values the joy of the new covenant. This is new. Isn't that exciting? I mean, think about how many times that term new is used throughout the gospels in the New Testament. This is not the old letter of the law. This is the new letter, the, the, the law of the Spirit. This is, the, this is the, the, the way in which life is imparted. 
to those who are dead. Jeremiah the prophet, he, he foresaw and, and spoke of this, this new covenant that would write the law of God on the hearts of his people. And so to the Pharisees and, and the religious and, and the, those who are seeking preservation, he's saying, look, I'm not coming to kind of bring you a few new spiritual ideas to, to, to fit into your kind of pre-made religious molds. No, he says, I am ushering in a new kingdom of redemption. Walk as a kingdom citizen. He's the one that brings this new covenant. And it is time and time again, the language is the language of joy. Which comes back to us as God's people in, in the middle of dark times. You realize as we look at the world, we look at the horrible war, wars going on everywhere. We look at our own culture and like this, this desire, it seems, at every turn to commit you know, some form of, of heinous act against what's good and right. And, and we kind of look at all that and we're like, oh man, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to go there. And yet, here's the thing. We're not called to be joyful in this sort of like blinded way. Like, okay, well, I'm just going to pretend like that's not true. And I'm just going to go off and be happy. You know, that's not it. No, it's realistic. It's like, no, this is horrible. Evil is evil. The Bible is the only place we find an actual account of, of why evil is here. And frankly, the Bible is the only place we actually find an account of what God's solution for evil is and what's going to happen in the end. In the meantime, we see it realistically and we have a realistic optimism. Not naive, but real. Why? Because Jesus is coming back soon. And there's a new kingdom. And we're actually a part of it now. And do you realize that every local church, every gospel church is a little kingdom outpost in the midst of a dark world? Right now, we're gathered. It's not the building. It's the people. And Jesus tells us that our love for one another is how they know we're his followers. There's a new covenant. And it's not the old letter of the law religion of, of performance-based moralism. No, it is new. It's given by grace. Each of us as sinners receive it by faith. And so we, we live in this way with joyful courage in dark times. And, and as we carry out the values that Jesus has, it means we're going to live lives in contact with outsiders, but also in contrast with outsiders at the same time. That's uncomfortable, by the way. You're going to be tempted to kind of like go right along with them. It's almost like, you know, as the world is doing this, if we're continuing to, to hold the biblical line, the distance starts growing we got to be comfortable with that. But we don't cut ourselves off. We live out joyful courage in repentance and joy. When we repent, it's a joyful thing. We celebrate God's provision of grace. 
We, we, just, we don't just talk about what we're giving up and walking away from. We talk about who we're turning to and what it means to be tasting of the Lord and seeing that is good and, and, and enjoying that. Walk with him. And then rather than missing out on this newly inaugurated kingdom of God, we, we, we stand in awe of what God's doing and we praise him for his wisdom in it. Even when it looks dark. So by the grace of God, let's walk in that way. And let's be aware of, of, of the fact that praise be unto God, Jesus didn't come to save those who are righteous. He came to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would help us to be very much aligned with you. You, the inaugurator of a new kingdom. You, the one who institutes a new covenant. You, the one who who sees those who have, like all of us, transgressed your commands. We have all fallen into the ways of, of perversity and twistedness in our own hearts. And so we ask, Lord, that even in this time now, we would rejoice in your offering of grace. Not because we've cleaned up our acts, not because we are a people who um, make moral strivings in order to be noticed by you, but, but instead we rejoice that you notice and call to follow you sinners and you call them to repentance. Give us the grace to joyfully embrace the same mission that you would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.